Hi, thanks for joining us for this message from Red Church in Melbourne, Australia. We pray that you are blessed by it. If you'd like to know more about Red Church and its ministries, or if you'd like to support us financially, you can find out more by heading to redchurch.org.au. Just wanted to let you know, um, you know, you get your little routines um, as you get up here and, uh, you know, have my phone, which uh, props up my iPad with my notes. I've got my uh, water bottle there, but I'm freaking out because I just put my hands like this as I normally do. And I think there is a bit of bubble gum there. And I just put my hand in it. And I just like to confess before you all, I am a germaphobe. Um, <laughs> Part of my weakness, uh, Paul had his thorns in his flesh. So, uh, yeah, I'm thrown. But we'll get through this. God is with us. We'll get through this. Oh, I will get through this. Oh, thank you. Oh. For a second, I thought it was like bubble gum remover. Oh, thank you. Thank you. I'm not going to catch bubble gum. One auspicious start um, to this sermon. We are... Uh, uh, I just want to affirm what uh, Britt said. Um, we were driving here this morning and we have a habit as a family. We're sort of getting everyone out the door and we sort of ask one of the kids to pray. It is more successful some mornings than others and the prayers are of a higher quality uh, uh, some mornings than others. And, uh, uh, and, but this morning uh, our son Billy prayed and it was one of those moments where you're like, oh, this is not normal. And what I mean by that is he just let out this absolute cork of a prayer and uh, he just had this sense that God was going to touch some people this morning. I was like, me and Trudy sort of looking at each other like, uh, we get here and um, we got into the pre-service sort of huddle prayer that we do with all the volunteers and multiple people had a sense that God wants to speak to some key people this morning. Um, so I just want to just put that out there, just affirm what Britt said as well. Um, before you got here, uh, people were praying and God is moving. So I'm just going to pray with that in mind. Um, God, we recognise you're moving. We recognise that your heart is for us. We recognise that scripts run in our head that are not in alignment with what you actually think about us, that you love us, you created us, you knitted us with purpose and you have a mission, a vision to see us transformed into Christ-likeness. So God, we just want to pray, Father, we, we don't know the human heart in the way that you do and we don't even know our own hearts half the time, but you do. And so, God, we just pray that you'll move in our hearts if there are specific people, even just a person this morning. I pray that you'll do what you've set out to do and promised to do already in your name. Amen. We are in a series which we've simply called The Vision. Normally you would do a vision series in March after Easter and everything and when people are settling into church. And we just felt the sense that Everything that's happened this year that God's done amongst us in, at times it's been one of the most difficult years, I think we have had it as a church, heaps of challenges, but in the midst of it, this sense that God is doing something and we wanted to reflect not on what is some sort of business plan we come up with, but rather what he's doing amongst us. Another alternate name we had for this was the invitation that there is an invitation to begin to see things as God sees them. In 1895, a small short story, a novella, was written. 
And it created an entire new genre of writing. Eventually, it would become movies. And it was a short novel written by H.G. Wells, and it was called The Time Machine. And this was a complete new invention because it was a new way of writing because what it did was it changed narrative. Narratives went from start to finish. You might have flashbacks where someone might remember something from the past. But H.G. Wells did something completely new, and he wrote the story of a man who discovers through the creation of a particular machine, which he called the time machine, and this man was able to move forward and backward in time. And this just was this fertile reimagining of how you could tell stories. You may have seen the 1960 film with Rod Taylor of The Time Machine. I remember seeing it as a kid and it sort of capturing my imagination. But it wasn't just that uh, original way that The Time Machine had been created and a different way of telling stories captured my imagination. Uh, there were also many other films. You had Doctor Who, who could travel through time in a British police uh, phone box. Uh, but probably most uh, burning in my childhood memory was a particular movie that was released by Robert Zemeckis in 1985. I think we've got a picture from it, uh, Back to the Future. <laughs> and there is something which just captures our imagination when it comes to movies about time travel. What's interesting about the time machine that H.G. Wells wrote is in the story, the character goes forward and he finds himself in this completely different world. And in this different world, there is this group of people called the Elohai, uh, which actually he stole from the biblical world, the Elohim, which is sort of like these God creatures and these supernatural beings. And he had these creatures and they sort of lived this almost idyllic life. At a point in the story, he discovers that where he actually is, is, is very familiar. He's actually still in London. It's just that sort of the trees have taken over and this new society has begun. And these Eloi are sort of these elf-like creatures who don't really know what it's like to work hard and they live this very utopian life. He then discovers this other kind of creature called the Morlocks. And they live under the ground and they work these machines and, and they're actually the ones that are making this beautiful world on the surface continue. And so what you realize that when you study what actually is going on, H.G. Wells writing about his universe of this time traveling world is that actually what's going on, he's not telling a story about the future, he's actually telling a story about the present. He's telling the story of what London was like in 1895 where you had this working class people who worked and toiled and went through the industrial revolution and then you had this aristocracy who lived this very pleasant and privileged life. So there's something about a desire to think about time which actually speaks to something of where we are now. In this scene, we'll just go back to, sorry, uh, uh, the doc there. This is at the end of Back to the Future, which was three movies. And this is at the end of the first scene. You go through this whole movie where uh, uh, Marty, Marty, uh, uh, Marty, what's his name? Marty McFly, thank you. Uh, goes back. That was that was passionate. That was like, <laughs> wow, this 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 movie means something. Getting our theology right. This is great. Orthodoxy of his name is this. Get it right. Didn't learn this at Bible college. I'm sorry. Um, 
he, uh, he goes through, back in time to the 1950s and, and, and solves some things. And there's this interesting th- sort of dynamic of what would happen if you could go back and change things. And in this scene, you get to the end of the movie and it's like the plot is, is resolved. And then from the future in his DeLorean comes the doc and he's got his awesome glasses on and his future clothes. And he basically says, I've come back from the future to tell you that your kids, I won't say exactly what he says, but in the future, your kids are idiots and like the future's messed up because something wrong has happened now. And what this captures is something which I think connects with us as human beings. What if I could go back and change the past? What if I could go back and change the past? If I could give you a DeLorean, which at 88 miles an hour would transport you to another place in time, what would you go back and change? Some people need to think about it. Other people, it's quite evident. You may go back and undo something. You may go back and take something back that you said, reverse an action. You might even just have that sense that if I know what I know now and went back and did high school again, I would do it differently or I would start a different career. And there's this sense that we have this desire to go back because we recognize the past role in shaping who we are now. Now, what's interesting is when you talk about vision, vision is always forward-facing. If I got up here and said, guys, we, I just want to outlay our vision. Our vision for 2016 is amazing. What we're going to do in 2016, the programs we're going to start, the mission that's going to happen, the exciting worship that we're going to outline for you in 2016 is going to be phenomenal. Oh, I touched it again. You, 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 if only I could go back. If only I could go back. I think, oh, look, this is happening. Oh, oh look, wow. Thank you. It's just blue tech. I know, but I don't know. Um, <laughs> oh, you've always got to preach your own message. Um, if, you, if you talk about vision, you can't talk about a vision of the past. What time travel movies and books and stories are doing is actually projecting vision into the past and wanting to change the past and believe that if you could change something in the past, that the future would change. But we can't do that. So there's this sense that God is always looking forward. Thomas Cahill wrote a really interesting little book, a history book, it was called The Gift of the Jews. And what he said in that book was that almost all cultures in what was known as the ancient Near East, the cultures that surround the people of God in the scriptures, almost all of them saw the world in a cyclical matter, uh, that you thought that what happened yesterday is just going to repeat tomorrow, and that life was just this repeating circle where people made the same mistakes and we had some progress, but then we declined, and then we, we, we had some breakthroughs, forgot them, and we just went in this repeating circle. But what happens is, as the people of God take form, is that they change the world because they actually look forward to this time. They talk about things like the day of the Lord, the coming of God, that actually history went from a circle to actually align forward, and this changed the world. In Isaiah 43 verse 19, it says this, God speaking says, see, I am doing a new thing. Now it springs up. 
Do you not perceive it? I am making a way in the wilderness and streams in the wasteland. God is in the business of the future and God is in the business of new creation. And new creation is the making of the future, but according to God's will. You see, new creation happens in the future because the future is new creation. God is moving history towards his ends. It is one of the great truths of the scriptures that when we read the end of the book of Revelation, that people have interpreted different elements of the book of Revelation, but what almost everyone agrees with, all the different scholars is, that it tells the story of the coming of the new Jerusalem and that God moves history towards his ends and in the end, God wins. So this is inevitable. The future is God's. Now, because God does his thing in the future, because the future is about new creation, it reveals the present as a kind of wilderness and a wasteland. This is what this verse is saying. It says, do you not perceive it? I'm making a way in the wilderness and streams in the wasteland. But we also have in Scripture this other way that we may approach God's future. I'm just going to read to you a little bit from Genesis 19, which, which is the first book of the Bible. And as we're getting into it, we've seen that there's these various falls, that what happens is humans have rebelled against God, and we see the consequences of sin. And some of that consequence of sin comes across a particular place where there is a man living called Lot. So Genesis 19:15 says this, With the coming of dawn, the angels urged Lot, saying, Hurry! Take your wife and your two daughters who are here, or you'll be swept away when the city is punished. When he hesitated, the men grasped his hands and the hands of his wife and his two daughters and led them safely out of the city, for the Lord was merciful to them. Notice that line, when he hesitated. There's this sense of us when we are given a direction to God's future. There's something in us that hesitates. We're not sure if we want to step into God's future sometimes. As soon as they brought them out, one of them said, flee for your lives, don't look back, and don't stop anywhere in the plain. Flee to the mountains, or you'll be swept away. But Lot said to them, no, my lords, please, your servant has found favor in your eyes, and you've shown great kindness to me in sparing my life. But I can't flee to the mountains. This disaster will overtake me, and I'll die. Look, here is a town near enough to run to, and it's small. Let me flee to it. It's very small, isn't it? Then my life will be spared. He said to them, very well, I grant this request to you. I will not overthrow the town you speak of, but flee there quickly because I cannot do anything until you reach it. This is why the town was called Zoar. By the time Lot reached Zoar, the sun had risen over the land. Then the Lord rained down, burning sulfur on Sodom and Gomorrah from the Lord of the heavens. Thus he overthrew those cities and the entire plain, destroying all those living in the cities and the vegetation of the land. You see in this story, Lot does not want to be moved forward. God has this plan. God sends his angels down. But Lot's movement is sort of, I'm not sure if I want to go. And then he goes and then he's negotiating. He's talking to these angels of the Lord. And in many ways, that represents partially what our discipleship journey looks like when we're moving toward God's future. Sometimes we stop. Sometimes we hesitate. Sometimes we're praying and negotiating. But the overall movement we see here from Lot is one of going forward. But the next line is haunting. It says this, What had the angel said? Don't look back. 
Then it says, but Lot's wife looked back and she became a pillar of salt. Salt is lifeless. Salt is something drained of all of its potential for growth. When salt is put into the ground in war at different times, people will destroy another civilization by salting their crops. When Carthage was destroyed by the Romans, they put salt into the ground to stop that civilization ever coming back. This aligns with something that Jesus says in Luke chapter 9, verse 62. Jesus replied, no one who puts a hand to the plow and looks back is fit for service in the kingdom of God. The Amplified Bible puts it this way, but Jesus said to him, no one who puts his hand to the plow and looks back to the things left behind is fit for the kingdom of God. So how do we get stuck facing backwards? Why do we have this desire that if we could just get the DeLorean and head back and change some things in the past, that we can actually then have difference in the present? Well, the scriptures have an answer, and it's a word that you find all through the New Testament. It's the word flesh. Humans look backwards when we are in what the scriptures call in the flesh. What is flesh? Flesh is like this master metaphor which captures the human condition after humans have fallen and rebelled against God. When Adam and Eve are cast out of the garden, they find themselves taken over by shame. They realize their nakedness. No longer do they walk with God in his presence. Unable to eat from the tree of life, they eat from the tree of the knowledge of good and evil, and it reveals all of their weakness. And humans are weak. We are made from flesh and bone, which breaks down. We are subject to many potential illnesses, diseases, and accidents. We also have these parts inside of us where we get hurt and we hurt others. And because we're weak, we realize at that moment, the serpent's temptation was to Eve, eat of the fruit because you then may be like gods. But actually what Adam and Eve discover is just how unlike gods they are. They are mortal human beings. And the flesh, it's this concept, and you can meditate on this for years, this sense that is so strange to the human condition that because of our weakness, because of our frailty, because of our mortality, we seek to do all these things which transcend that in our own strength. Flesh is weakness, but us trying to be strong in our own strength. Flesh is our self-hatred, but then also our pride. Flesh is us bringing the things of the earth continually into moments which God's heart is for them to be directed by heaven. And when you think about the flesh, there's really three elements to this. The first one is our body. As I said, we are creatures created with human bodies. There is unique things about your physical being. All of us are walking around in these suits of skin, with bones and nervous systems and brains and human organs, and something goes wrong in them, and we very quickly realize how limited we are. So the number one is flesh. The second thing that is part of us as well, and I think we've got a slide for this coming up, is our soul. Our soul 
often we think about as a Casper the Ghost kind of thing. We've watched too many movies where our body dies and then sort of hovering up from our body, Casper the Ghost comes and that's our spirit and heads off. The scriptures have this term nefesh. It's souls are like a much bigger concept. Watchman Nee, the Christian writer, talked about this, this, the soul in the sense of our emotions, our desires. It's, it's different in a way to our body and our flesh, but it's still very much part of us. There are people in this room with hopes, histories of your emotional interactions with people. There's some moments where something happens and you can feel yourself almost emotionally changing and there's a response then in your body, our emotions and our desires. But then we also have a mind. The, the mind is where our thoughts exist. And so the enemy wishes to connect us and link us back to the past. If God is the God of the future and God's moving history towards his ends, what the enemy wants to do is to throw hooks and lock us back in the past. And this will happen in three ways. You can see them there on the screen. Firstly, Many people will be linked to the past through the habitual patterns of their bodies. Have you ever learned to do something like juggle or perhaps it's just how you drive a car with your hands and it's so second nature that you don't even think about it? It's become absolutely habitual. If you've played a particular sport for many years, most of us don't think about certain things that we're doing. You may cook dinner or drive a car on a freeway and your mind is so elsewhere and you don't actually remember yourself doing these particular things. That's because our bodies are able to go on a kind of autopilot when they're in repeated patterns. Now, the other issue is that this can go very wrong. When our bodies are so attuned to doing things that are against what God's design is for us that automatically we're led by our bodies. So much of addiction is actually this playing out. Something that begins but then almost becomes second nature and you find yourself being physically drawn to repeatedly doing things. There are people in this room who the enemy has a rope and a hook to the past which is preventing you from moving forward because your body is actually running the game in ways that are not what God's design is for you. That soulish part of us, our emotions, our desires, the past can wound, the past can shape. Something said in primary school, I find, in doing pastoral ministry with people over the years, someone can say something in primary school to someone, and you're talking to someone in their 50s, and it still shapes them. A parent can be loving, but a word said in anger can really wound. Friends, spouses, even just a stranger on the street, can make a seemingly indelible mark in that part of us, our emotions. Our disordered desires, when they're pointed in the wrong direction, when they're led up a garden path by the enemy or this overwhelming concept of the flesh, can for years leave us stuck to the past, continually not moving forward. The past has tremendous power over us. Others will be shaped not by the flesh, oh, sorry, not by, the, by our bodies, not by the emotions, our desires, that soul part of us, but actually by our mind. Repeated negative thought patterns. 
which keep us stuck. Everyone has sort of frameworks, mental frameworks through which they view the world. It's amazing. You can talk to people who are incredible optimists and incredibly pessimistic, and they'll have the exact same situation and see it completely differently through just looking through two frameworks. The exact same circumstances. And again, too, this is often not shaped because people go out of the way to be so pessimistic. This can actually be shaped because people have learnt to have that negative framework which exists in their minds, which just operates like a neural pathway that people go down every time because of something that happened in the past. The flesh is deeply linked to the power of the past. Now, many people know this. I could get up and give this in a sense, take out the Bible verses, and up to this point, I could almost give this as a TED talk or something anywhere, and people would be like, yeah, yeah, no, I hear that. And so one of the things that humans will do, and this is one of the contradictions of the flesh, is that we recognize our weakness. We recognize how our bodies run things when we don't want them to, how our emotions are all over the shop, our desires are often disordered, how our thought and patterns are negative. And so what we do is we try and conquer that with just more flesh. One of the big problems of humans is we know we are living in the flesh, so we can't try and conquer it with more flesh. We compensate. Now, interestingly, one of the cultural values that many of us don't realize we possess is that one of the big things of the moment, and it's got a history, I'm not going to go into it all today, but what it is, is the ethic or worldview of mastery. I'll say that again. The ethic or worldview of mastery. There are many different stripes of this. There are many different flavors. You can go into any bookstore. You can spend the rest of your life on YouTube. And what you're hearing is the gospel of mastery. What's mastery? Mastery is the belief that if through your will, you can do a series of actions you can change dramatically. Now, with anything which leads us astray, there's probably 80% truth in it. That you will be told that if you want to change, you need to master time management. If you want to change, you need to master an entire new fitness regime, which is going to change you. And there's 27,000 versions of this. It could be... I don't know, Byron Bay influencer doing Pilates on a wave. Um, Or it could be, you know, transforming yourself from, I don't know, guy on a bus going to Forest Hill Chase to Navy SEAL levels of fitness. And then by mastering these things, getting up and eating seven raw eggs and rising before 4 a.m. and reading the entire library of Greek Stoics, that if you do all of these things, that you will then attain some mastery. And there's so many variants of it. It's literally everywhere. The mastery of how to become someone who can become a real estate baron or you know, can just have incredible mindfulness or we can just master our organizations through, I don't know, human relations where we have the right meetings and nothing ever goes wrong in an organization. I could go on and on with the thousand and one 
varieties of this. Again, heaps of it's true. It's good to have an organization where they're caring for people. Maybe the guy on the bus does need to be a little bit fitter. Maybe there is something where we can learn from many of these things. Time management's good. If I had good time management, I might not be here today. But our culture has that as the overwhelming and singular tool to deal with the living in the flesh that we live in and to deal with the past. Michael J. Sandel says this, something really interesting in reflecting on this order. Of, of, he says, the ethic of mastery puts human choice at the center of the spiritual order. So what this says is, yes, it's good to do some of these things, but if you fail and the flesh defeats you, who is at fault? You are. If you can't master the Navy SEAL physical techniques and actually change your life around, if you can't change your time or work out how to, I don't know, love, what is it, men from women and women from Venus or whatever, whatever the heck self-help book has been for the last 30 years or YouTube hours that you've watched, if you can't do this, who is at fault? You. Now, some of these things are tools and tips and in their right place are helpful. But what we need to move forward, instead of just mastery being our singular tool, instead of mastery, we need to follow the master. The path to the future follows behind Jesus, the master. And we as individuals who are following Jesus, and we as a church are being called to the future, to be future focused, ready prepared and following the master to the next opportunity. Now, if you're sitting here feeling guilty, like, oh, I'm doing this fitness routine, or actually, I'm just reading this book on, on time management, and actually, I do need some help, and I'm buying a second house or whatever. No judgment. Zero judgment here. I'm just saying mastery in of itself is not going to get you there. What will get you there is Jesus, who is the king of the future. So the answer it's not actually more life in the flesh. We can't fight life in the flesh with more flesh. The answer is life in the spirit. Galatians 5 verse 25 says, Since we live by the spirit, let us keep in step with the spirit. If you said to me, I was once asked actually on a, on a podcast, I was being interviewed and, and they had some questions and they'd sent them to me and I'm, I'm normally pretty good on my feet and in interviews and I sort of enjoy that side of it. But they just said to me, out of the blue, this guy said, Mark, what exactly does life in the spirit look like? And I sort of gave an answer and I think I probably gave the right theological answer. But you know, in my head, I went to a person. When I first uh, became a senior leader of this church, it was a very different church. It was a church that was in a lot of flux and we'd had four different congregations and a couple of them had fallen over and I took over and one was in the process of falling over and this is the ancestor of the one uh, that I took over but there was one other and that one we had to shut down and there was actually someone who was going to that particular congregation. And she was a fascinating woman. She used to play worship and she used to just get on the piano and just belt out these incredibly soulful tunes. And she'd actually lived quite an incredible life in the late 70s and early 80s. She'd been this sort of figure in the Melbourne sort of new wave, punk and then new wave. And then she'd gone off and lived in Europe and you would sit and she'd tell you all these stories. I'm not going to do the name drop, but the famous sort of new wavy alternative music people. She was friends with them. 
She did all the things that, like, if you wrote this down, she just was so cool and had done all of the cool things and hung out with very famous, cool people. Like, everything that a sort of cool Melbourne person would want to do. <laughs> and, but at the end of this, in her middle age, she found Jesus. And she was totally transformed. And she was an amazing person. But then she received a, a diagnosis. Uh, she had cancer and it was terminal. And this all happened as we're sort of trying to change the church and we had to shut down the particular congregation that she was part of because it just wasn't viable anymore. And me and Trudy went and met with her in the hospital. And you go and there's that sense of on a pastoral meeting when someone's in that place, if you don't know what to expect. But what was incredible, here was someone who knew they only had a month or two to live. And she was the most alive in the spirit person I think I've met. You walked into the hospice and she was beaming, absolutely beaming. And she was already like a proper Christian before this happened. And, but there was something that her whole focus at that moment was to the future. I clearly remember her saying, I just am so excited to meet Jesus. She, she knew that it was going to be hard and family and, and, and there was all those elements of what grief brings in such a moment. But she was so future-focused to the point where the things of the flesh had, as the song says, grown strangely dim. I clearly remember that. When Judy had her diagnosis and there was, there was parts in this year, I, I didn't know what was going to happen and we were preparing for the worst. I, I remember there were these moments where, I didn't, I'm not saying I experienced that, but I experienced something similar where you realised what eternity was. I remember when we moved into our street, Trudy bought our house uh, years ago, super smart move. I moved, I married into money and <laughs> like, uh, uh, not money, I mean, she was more smart than, than you, know, uh, you know, and, and she bought this house. She's like, Mark's going to not make any money, it's in ministry. So she bought this house. Amazing move. <laughs> Rented it out. Amazing. And I remember we moved into the street and our street was mostly older people and, um, you know, I remember, you know, five years after, a number of them passed on and, and in my head I'm like, oh, we're the younger people in the street. And since then some younger people have moved into our street. And I remember when we got Trudy's diagnosis, I remember thinking, oh, hang on, are we now the older people that the younger people are looking at and will remember when they passed? And it just dawned on me how fleeting life is. That Ecclesiastes moments that, Really, this goes very quick. It's very fragile. It's very fleeting. Our time here is short. And when you start to see it like that, the weirdest thing is it actually enables you to live better here and now. When you are future-focused and you realize half the stuff we worry about doesn't matter. I remember when I first preached... Um, after Trudy's diagnosis and got up here and a number of people said, 
don't know how you're doing this market and how you're getting up here. This must be really difficult. Can I be completely honest? It was easy because I didn't care. I think it's probably harder for people listening to me sometimes knowing what we're going through. But I think at that moment, there's a sense of like, this is about life in the spirit. It's not being drawn back to the flesh. When you see things in its true perspective, my old pastors at this church, Ellen Deb Hirsch, had this habit. I don't know how often they did it, but they said anytime they had to make a big decision in life, they'd walk around a graveyard. Put it in perspective, um, very gothic. Um, but, um, but really what they're doing, you know, it's that sense, memento mori in the Latin, remember your death. Remember that sense that we are here for a moment. And bizarrely, when you do that, you realize that actually we are created to, to live not just this life, but created to live life in the spirit. God's heart was always, he breathed breath and he breathed his spirit into the flesh of Adam and that's what created a human being. When Jesus, like there was Pentecost which happens in Acts but there's also the Pentecost that happens in earlier when Jesus breathes his spirit, his breath on the disciples. He says we live by the spirit, let's keep in step with the spirit. What God's shown us this year is that we've aligned with him even in difficult moments he advances his kingdom. In this week we're in the office and I think it was on Thursday, I can't remember what day it was, and people moving around the office and there's, you know, office things happening. And, uh, you know, a Brit sort of stood up and, and I looked across as I was heading out uh, the door and um, she had tears in her eyes. And you're sort of like, we're doing office things, what's going on? I'm expecting, you know, I mean, sometimes people cry with administration, but this was something different. <laughs> um, and she was, <laughs> she was, she was, um, compiling some of the story, we've got an annual general meeting coming up, compiling some of the stories of what God has done this year. And she just said, it's just incredible what God's done this year, despite us a lot of the time. I've never seen this much change in so many people. So many difficult things this year. We had people outside of Red, like friends going, I don't know, Red's going to get through this. But here we are, changed. Many, but there's some who God wants to change, and change is coming. God's moving history towards his ends. He's advancing his kingdom. And I just want to say the environment's changing. I've talked about this a lot, but I just want to keep saying, we are in a changing environment. New and unexpected opportunities are opening up. Some of you were here when people uh, came on stage. Pete Gregg spoke, and there was that incredible moment where he, he got us all to yell, come on. And um, he then got a bunch of the under 25s onto the stage. And they, you could see something happen as we spoke, and, or as he spoke and prayed for them. And then I spoke to a couple afterwards who just, that had been a key moment. We're hearing stories back from people of Red and people from other churches who are in the, on that stage. There are prayer meetings that have started. There are people that have received the Holy Spirit since that moment. There are people who were on stage who've got an absolute heart to actually start something amongst their generation. God is on the move. You see, to align with God's vision, we must align with him. This is not the vision. God's got a vision. God's got a heart to move things forward. The actual real crux of the matter is, will we move from being past orientated and trying to get in the DeLorean and go back and fix things and actually will we continue to be stymied by the hooks of the past and the flesh? Will we be Lot's wife? Or will we actually look forward with God that he wants to do? Things are changing. This week, I remember... 
early 2000s or, mid, or maybe mid sort of 2000s, I remember being at Flinders Street Station and my heart sinking. At that moment, I remember just so many churches were finding it difficult in Melbourne. And there was this sense that we were just losing so many people, people walking away from faith. I had so many friends walk away from faith at that time. And I remember walking on the station peak hour at Flinders Street Station and just seeing so many people reading one singular book, and that was Richard Dawkins' The God Delusion. You had the rise of the new atheists, and you had this sense that atheism was back and it was with a force and it was coming, and, and people were reading that and walking away from faith. This week, Ayan Hirsi Ali, one of the new atheists, who was one of the key people in that group of people like Dawkins and Dennett and Christopher Hitchens, uh, she was in a sense there, so a star convert out of faith. She was actually born in Somalia, she was a Muslim, and she renounced it and became an atheist. And so she was sort of their star convert or deconvert. This week she announced she'd become a Christian. And Justin Brealey, uh, who does podcasts, has got his podcast at the moment called The Rise and Fall of the New Atheists. I didn't expect to see that. There's stuff happening that's going to happen in the next little bit. History's not going to continue in the way that we thought it. There are so many people out there who are having questions and asking questions about faith because at a rapid rate over the last few months, even just in it, you look at the polling, and I'm not going to go into this, it could be another whole talk, but you look at the polling, almost every leader across the world, from South Korea to Argentina to, to you know, England, every leader leading at the moment has a terrible approval rating. Even in our country, our, our Prime Minister's approval rating is going downwards. People are fundamentally frustrated with the direction of the world and the stories they've been told, all different kinds of stories, are actually falling over. And there's an incredible evangelistic opportunity at this moment. But to go forward with God's vision, we've got to align with his vision of the future. So how do, God's, how do churches move into God's future? I told a little bit of the story there of this church. And I'm not going to go into it because it's a long story. But some of you may not know that we began this expression. We were four churches. There was northeast, southwest of what was red back then. The others apart from east fell over. This was east and then it became red because the others fell over. And we started in a house, but then we went to a cafe. And we were at a cafe in Box Hill. And literally it was like 13 people. We didn't have a sermon. It was a discussion. We didn't have worship because we completely deconstructed everything about how we did church. And you basically just rocked up and had a chat. And so we talked about God and different things like this. And the, and the aim of it was to reach out to people outside of the church and advance the church by, in a sense, making the church fit into the culture of the world. That was the general vision. And that was my heart. My heart bled for the church existing for mission as, you know, a fire exists by flame. Flame exists by fire. But what I began to see is something very different happened, is I realized that positioning a church for mission doesn't actually make mission happen. And actually what I realized is that doing a church in a cafe where you're sort of there and you're you know, setting it up in a way that makes it accessible to people outside the church is that people outside the church actually have a more church view of the church than people inside the church. And the kind of people who want to come to a church in a cafe and just chat and not people outside the church. People outside the church think that's weird and often think it's a cult. <laughs> and actually, it's just people who are Christians and don't like church and just want to come and have a sit, have a chat. 
and went through this, and it took years, and it was a whole story. But I remember reading a quote from an author, it was actually from Blackburn, who's Steve Addison, and he talked about all the movements that have the church has grown. And he said, every movement where God has advanced his kingdom amongst the people has begun with white, hot faith. And I sat there, I thought, yeah, I've got a heart, I've got an idea, I've got lots of opinions, I've got lots of mates, I've got lots of opinions about what the church should look like, but what is missing is actually white hot faith. And when I had to look inside and I said, God, I actually haven't got white hot faith. And God is actually building hot faith amongst us. That's what's been happening. When you have white hot faith, it overflows and God begins to move people forward. So I just want to give you three ways that God moves his church forward. I don't think we've even got, this is so fresh, I don't think they're even in the PowerPoint, they've come post that. The first way is through deepening. God moves a people forward to his future through deepening. When he deepens people and he deepens them in their faith and they become more formed, their desires of their hearts actually begin to not be conformed by the past or the flesh, but actually what God's future is. When their emotions begin to come under the lordship of Christ, when their thought patterns are actually being renewed as the mind of Christ, this breaks many of the patterns that their bodies have, and actually our spirit begins to run the whole train. Instead of our body running the train, the train going backwards, actually what begins to happen is we become into alignment with God's discipleship plan for us and we become deeper people. In an age of unbelievable shallowness that's only getting worse, where we reach an entire you know, world where, the, sorry, where we actually our, our idea of an international incident is simply a 20-second TikTok video and that's how we make a decision In a world of unbelievable superficiality, God is building a people who are deep, who have deep roots, who are actually rooted in him, not just the ever-moving trends of the world. So God moves forward a people through deepening. And there has, I just want to say, been a deepening amongst us, particularly in the last year. And when he deepens people, he begins to move them into alignment with his way. What he does is he empowers them. In Acts, when the Holy Spirit falls, those disciples have been on a process of deepening. They're a bunch of Galilean fishermen. They're complaining. They think they know better than Jesus. They're like elbowing each other out of the way to sit at the right hand of Jesus to be the top dog in the kingdom of God, which they think is like this earthly, I don't know what, like pyramid scheme or something. And then they, get, they, they go through that all. They hear Jesus' teaching. They experience the persecution. They see their Lord crucified on the cross. They see him tortured, trialed, crucified on the cross. And then they encounter the living Jesus. There's been a bunch of deepening happened, but something else has to happen. Jesus says, wait into Jerusalem. Yes, they've been formed. Yes, they're deep, but something else needs to come. And what comes at that moment is the Holy Spirit and empowers. If the church is going to do its thing, it actually needs the Holy Spirit upon them. We have that announcement about the lunch. I used to be in the Salvation Army, did 10 years of ministry in the Salvation Army, did many, many lunches like that, used to run one every week. And what you saw is people come through and often someone would have this big revelation moment where they're working in finance or something or in corporate and they felt bad about themselves because they weren't contributing to the world and they'd want to come and they'd come and volunteer amongst homeless people or people lived in boarding houses and they'd come and often they would last three weeks. 
because it didn't feed something in them. You would see people who begin with a heart for serving the poor, for advancing the kingdom, but very quickly they become cynical and then they would just be sort of sit there with very dark humor, often just joking about the people that they're actually serving. We need empowering to do the ministry and the kingdom work. We need empowering in our vocational things, whether you're a parent, whether you're single, whatever job or work you do, whether you're a student, whether you're a high school student, we need the Holy Spirit empowering us to do those things, to advance God's kingdom in those places. And the last thing I want to say is, firstly, there's deepening, then there's empowering, and then there's advancing. There's advancing. There is a moment for us to ask the question, of what is God doing at this moment? There are churches, I, I, for some reason, I don't know how this has happened, and maybe it's the Holy Spirit, or maybe it's just like an algorithm or something. But on Instagram, like, I don't know if it's like, it's no mind, like every, every ad for me is an abandoned church somewhere. Is this just me? Is this the algorithm? Like, like I'm looking, I just came up yesterday, like this incredible abandoned church in Tasmania. And then like the next day, then there's an abandoned church here. I'm just getting constant abandoned churches come up before me. And the way they always talk about them is, you know, it was once this church and now it can be this incredible home and you put it on a jacuzzi where the font was or something. And, you know, this is how they sell it. There is a point that in Australia, we, if you look at the statistics are at a moment of retreat. In 2016, up to 2016, the sort of hope in the Australian churches, the Pentecostal churches were growing. In 2016, they started declining. We are about to see, I've said this before, the baby boomer generation, which has served very well, and those who stayed in the church and served, they're going to retire, and they're going to retire to the kingdom of God in the next 10 years. Since 2020, since lockdown, the Australian church, roughly different guesses think that probably Sunday attendance has declined by 30%. That's just literally in the last three years. But I actually think what God is doing is that the, the conditions are changing. There are stories that we're hearing. I've not heard for 15 years. God is moving amongst people. There are different churches, Pentecostal churches, where people are always you know, hearing you know, visions and, and stuff saying. But I'm hearing them from people who don't talk like that in denominations that don't act like that. God is doing something and God is on the move. So the question is, how do we advance with him? God wants to not just grow. We got obsessed with numbers in the church. I had a mate who's part of a denomination. You'd rock up to the annual conference and you'd have to have how many people in your church on the, on the like name tag. And like, well, I'm in the 100. Oh, there, there's Makona roast, you know, granule over there. And I'm over 5,000. Well, you know, he's a barista for you. Not exactly like that. But this sense that we got obsessed with numbers. But I actually think at this moment, though, God is asking, how do we advance? And there are doors opening. I can't share everything. There are doors opening. There are so many people from coming around the world, I said this the other week, who are actually open to faith. God wants to move things. There is movements that he wants to begin among students. There are actually movements that he wants to begin in schools. There is prayer meetings beginning in high schools. Like I got asked to come to a Christian meeting when I was in high school, and I didn't go because I thought it would be dorky. But now there are kids who don't have that fear. That was, that's on me. There are, there, are, there are people who don't have that fear. There are kids who are meeting and praying at lunchtimes. God is advancing at this time. And so as a church, the question we'll be asking, we don't have some amazing plan here. We just actually know that we follow an amazing God. And that actually he is going forward and advancing the kingdom. And we want to be alongside that. And as we want to push on those doors, there is no resistance from the flesh and they'll open. So what I want to end, I've preached for a long time, but what I want to end is this. There are people in this room who have hooks to the past. 
I have this mental image of literally there are people, there was this crazy performance artist called Stalark. Uh, it was in the 90s in Melbourne, and he would like hang his body, and he'd have these meat hooks, and it was horrible to look at, but what it showed me was that how resilient the, like, the body is. He'd be alive and hanging on these hooks. Blah. Anyway, sorry to put that image before lunch, but I have the image, almost like Stalark, that there are people, and in their back, you've literally got a hook, and it's literally pulling the flesh, and there's an element you're trying to walk forward into God's future, but you can't, because there's actually like these hooks to the past. And what God wants to do, God's not going to give you like a DeLorean so you can go back and master the past and in your own strength, you know, just come up with some master plan of mastery to beat it. What the Holy Spirit wants to do is to cut those ties to the past. He wants to bring healing. He wants to help you get over things that have just been enemy used to create these traps and strongholds in your minds. Whether it's your body, your soul, your emotions, your desires, whether it's these thought patterns, the actual thing is that God at this moment wants to free some people. There have been people moving this year, moving forward in their faith, but actually there's others who are getting standing there and frustrated, it's not happening. God wants to do that now. So what we're going to do is let's stand, bands can come up, and I'm going to pray. And we follow a God who is a God who moves history towards his end, who has all power, majesty, and authority. And we're going to do two things. We're going to take communion on the sides and at the back. There is the juice, which symbolizes Jesus' blood spilled for you. Did you know that when in the temple they would offer up a sacrifice, they would purify the temple. The priests would put blood on different elements and it would consecrate those different elements in the holiest of holies. And so Jesus' blood actually consecrates and brings life. Jesus' blood consecrates and brings life. When you take of this blood, let this be a consecration moment where things are healed in you that have been holding you back. I don't know what they are. Holy Spirit does. When we take of this bread, this symbolizes Jesus' body. Think about that. The flesh is your body. But when Jesus died on the cross, you don't live out of your mortal, frail flesh. You live out of Jesus' resurrected body. And one day, the scriptures tell us, we'll be resurrected with him. So let's actually do this as stepping into the life of the Spirit so come forward, take communion, but also just want to offer that if you would like to be prayed for, there's going to be some people on the side of the room. If we haven't organized that let, let, yet, let's do that. This is sort of happening live. Um, if you would like to be prayed for, I'm just going to ask you just to come forward and, and ask to be prayed of some of those hooks that are holding you back. God wants to do some decisive things right now. Jesus, we stand in your authority. You are the master of us. We don't need to overcome things through mastery. We follow you, Jesus, our Lord and King. In Jesus' name, through the power of Jesus, I just want to pray that hooks that have kept us trapped to the past at this moment will be broken. I want to pray against the ways that our body has actually been addicted, stuck in habitual patterns which actually do not serve and glorify you. We pray that they'll break in this moment. God, we want to pray for emotions which have been hurt and wounded. We want to pray in Jesus' name that desires that are like 
disordered. Maybe we're just like lusting after things that are not of you, coveting things that are not ours. Whatever that looks like, you know Jesus, you know the human heart. We pray that that's broken now. In Jesus' name, we want to pray too for mind patterns, thought patterns, which have just held us back, repeating scripts that have just become deep, both spiritually, but also just in our mental pathways, strongholds of the mind. We want to pray that you'll break them now. God, we want to walk forward in your future. We want to follow behind Pray now, Jesus, do your work. So as we worship, Holy Spirit, come. We know you're here, but come into those parts of our body, our mind, and our soul. We want to live in your spirit.